Hi everyone, this is Brant Van Rokel, lead pastor of Christ City Kitsilano, and I want to let you know about a couple of things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us at Fifth Avenue Cinema on Burrard Street at 9.30 a.m. We meet every Sunday morning for worship, word, and sacrament, and we'd love for you to join us there. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church Kitsilano is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to hear more about what God has called us to here in Kitsilano, then please reach out to me at brant at christcitychurch.ca or you can visit christcitychurch.ca slash Kitsilano. The reading for today comes from Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, to the end of the age. Well, uh, as we come now to this passage of Scripture and our last message in our series on the goodness of Jesus, I want to invite you to pray with me and ask the Lord's help. God, we come to you and we come uh, confident in your presence, in your power. Lord, we come confessing our own weakness, our own hesitancy and doubt, our lack of faith and trust in your goodness, but then confident that you are merciful toward us and patient. And we thank you for that. We want to praise you for that even as we begin. And Lord, we also pray that you would work by the power of your Holy Spirit and the authority of your word to shape our hearts, to challenge us with who you really are, Jesus. That we would put all of our faith and our trust in you, that we would respond with joy to your rule and to your command and to your presence. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we come to the end of our sermon series on the goodness of Jesus. But that doesn't mean that the goodness of Jesus has come to an end. Praise God. In fact, this text that we're in, this passage that we're in, is this catalytic moment in the life of Jesus when his goodness actually begins to explode outward. When the goodness goes from more than a a few followers in ancient Judea to begin to spread across the world. This expansion of Jesus' goodness is beautiful. It's compelling. We're going to look at it this morning, but it's also confrontational. And it's confrontational because what it says to us and what we see in this text and what Jesus says here in this passage is that Jesus isn't just good as one among many other equal and possible options. No, Jesus claims to be good as the, capital T-H-E, the exalted King of Kings. As the resurrected Savior and God who conquered death and sin and Satan, who's come uniquely to give salvation and eternal life to his people. And what that means is that that by that very declaration of his own goodness and authority and power in this enormous way, he's calling to account, he's declaring his victory, he's becoming one who's entering into confrontation with every other God or philosophy or ideology that would claim to offer life in his place. 
See, by this claim of Jesus' goodness, he's saying every other claim to the same thing is a counterfeit. And he's calling us to leave those things, to come instead and to willingly submit to and to live under his gloriously good rule. See, our passage this morning is triumphant, it's comforting, but it's also challenging. See, part of the goodness of Jesus is that he is a God who is good enough to confront us and to call us to embrace fully his own goodness. So as you look at this text, I want you to hear Jesus' challenge. That's what I want for you this morning. I want his challenge to to strike you. I want you to wrestle with these words of Scripture. And I want you to consider your own response to our three points. And our three points are these, the goodness of Jesus' rule, the goodness of Jesus' command, and the goodness of Jesus' presence. So wrestle with these things. Let's hear what this text has to say to us as we look at the goodness of Jesus' rule, starting with verse 16. And there, Matthew writes these words. Now, the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. So they're obeying Jesus' command, and they're going to the place that he told them to go to after he's been raised from the dead. And these words are the beginning of the very last words, the last paragraph of Matthew's gospel, of his account of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. And a lot of stuff has been said before this final paragraph. Matthew has shown us throughout the gospel again and again and again that Jesus is far more than just a gifted, ancient Judean teacher. He's much more than that. He's healer. He's miracle worker. He's teacher in this profound way who sits in the place of Moses who gave the law of God to the people of Israel. And Jesus now gives the law of God as God to his people who will follow him. We've seen all these things and more in the gospel. And now the disciples, they're heading to the mountain in Galilee in obedience to Jesus' command. They know where they need to go. And at this point in their lives, they are at this unique moment where they know so much more even than all these things we've just mentioned. Because right now, they're wrestling with a couple of things. They've come to know that Jesus is also the Savior who died on the cross for their sins. They know now that he's the victor over Satan and sin and death, that he's resurrected Lord, King of kings, that he is returning to the Father, that he is God incarnate. And it's almost too much to take in. It's just so much. And that's why there's a mixed response in verse 16. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. It's an interesting word, some doubted. On the one hand, there are those that are getting it, and they're, they're responding and, and worshipping Jesus. But on the other hand, there are those who, who doubt. This is the same word that was in Alvin's passage that he preached last week. It's a rare word for doubt. And I think here it depicts a kind of a hesitancy. They wonder, what do we do in response to all that we've seen? We're not, we're not sure yet. We're still trying to sort it out. Will we trust Jesus completely and follow him? What do we do with all the enormity of who he is? And yet even as they hesitate in their response to him, we see the goodness of Jesus. 
Because in his patience and his kindness, he kindly opens their eyes to see him still more clearly. Look at verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority. All authority. In heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. When you think of authority, you can think of maybe your authority over the little sphere of your life, your house, your little dominion. You can think of civic authority and the the authority to, to do and to make decisions in a place like Vancouver. You can think of national or federal authority. Jesus has all authority. If you can think of an authority and a claim to power, Jesus has it. Jesus is over it. In heaven and on earth is a way of saying that he has all of it. Wherever you can think of it, it is his and it belongs to him. And these words, all authority in heaven and earth are given to me. These are the crowning and final statement in Matthew's gospel about Jesus' power and authority. But it's just the crowning and final statement of all that's come before. And Matthew has already said a lot before about Jesus' power and authority. It's kind of like throughout the gospel, he's been unveiling it a little bit by degree. Jesus letting us in little by little to see the extent of his awesome authority. I want to show you a few examples because one of the favorite ways that Jesus would use to communicate his power and authority is through a self-description. You know what that is? The self-description of the Son of Man. He would call himself the Son of Man to show the kind of authority and power that he has. And little by little, he's been sprinkling these in. Matthew 9, verse 6, Jesus said, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. I can forgive sins. I can heal. I have authority. I am the Son of Man. In Matthew 12, verse 8, in a confrontation with the Pharisees, the religious leaders at the time who had all these strong statements and rules about how to, how to live on a Saturday, a Sabbath day. It was supposed to be a holy day for God. And Jesus confronts them. And he says, the Son of Man is Lord. He has authority over the Sabbath. In Matthew 16, 27, Jesus speaks of his power and authority in ways that make us uncomfortable, talking about his authority to judge. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels and the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. In Matthew 24, verse 30, again, he talks about the time of his returning and the unveiling of all his glory and authority and power that will bring every person in heaven and on earth to their knees. And he says this, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. The Son of Man, 
a slow unpacking of the authority of Jesus throughout the gospel. But it's a bit of a weird way to talk about yourself, isn't it? I think it's just kind of weird to talk about yourself in the third person at all. Uh, I don't know if you guys watch Seinfeld. I like Seinfeld. Uh, but Seinfeld has a whole episode about this called The Jimmy, uh, where, he, where he refers to himself in the third person. It'd be weird for me to say, hey, Brant wants coffee with you. You know, Brant wants to pray for you. Uh, Parker, Brant wants to pray for you. You know, there's a, there's a weird way that we could use that, and it's a bit odd. So why is Jesus using this weird saying? Why does he use this obscure way of talking about himself at all? Well, it's because it's his way of revealing his authority, his power of who he is, according to one very specific prophecy in the Bible. The prophecy that's found in Daniel chapter 7. And in this chapter, Daniel 7, a very important one, I encourage you to go read it after the gathering. All the rulers and authorities of this world, they're depicted kind of like politicians in political satire. And they're depicted in this kind of caricatured way, but it's not funny. It's actually grotesque. It's supposed to be an unveiling and an exposing in, in this apocalyptic way of the grossness of the rulers and the corrupt authorities of this world. And these human authorities that are rebellious against God and his good commands, they're depicted by chaos and disorder, by these beasts that are loathsome, that devour and salivate and destroy and wreak havoc everywhere they go by their corrupt rule, rule, uh, by their corrupt rule. And as the reader reads this passage of Scripture in Daniel 7, we're left wondering, what will God do? How is he going to respond to right all the wrongs of the corrupt human disorder and rule of wrong and false authority in this world? As you keep reading, you see that God is looking out over the chaos and disorder too. And his solution is to fix the corruption of human authority that rebels against his good commands by sending a man from heaven. One like the Son of Man. And give to him an eternal, unstoppable dominion that will triumph over every wrong authority that lifts its head on earth and triumphs over them in the goodness of God. I'm going to read the passage for you. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, that's God, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one, that shall not be destroyed. The disciples are good Jewish boys. And as Jesus comes to them and says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. They would think of his title as the son of man. They would think of this passage. They would realize Jesus is the son of man. He is God. He is man. Come to reorder this broken world by bringing all things back under the dominion of God. By asserting a new dominion in the place of all that's broken and corrupt and wicked and destructive. 
But note this. Jesus' dominion, his kingdom, it's not built only on great power. It's not just an assertion of power. It's also built on great love because I left out perhaps the most key verse about the Son of Man in all of the book of Matthew. You know what that is? Matthew 20, verse 28. And there Jesus says this, the Son of Man, with all that power and glory, yet he came not to be served, but to serve. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. See, Jesus is glorious in power and authority as a Son of Man, but he's most glorious because of what he does with that power and authority. He lays it down. He empties himself. Takes the place of a servant and willingly dies for human beings. Dies in our place for our sins. He goes to the cross not to crush his enemies, but to win them to himself by loving them to the end. By laying his life down for his enemies, they would become the children of God. So when Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Christ said, these are words of glory, of authority, of hope. This crucified, gloriously good servant Savior is now the King of kings and his dominion will never end. So I think that we should take courage. I think it's very often the case that as Christians we are fearful as followers of Jesus. But we are to take courage. The one we follow has all authority in heaven and on earth and his dominion lasts for forever. Do not fear. He is with you. There's also a warning here because he's coming again. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. So this morning, uh, if you're someone who's hesitating with what to do with the goodness of Jesus, I want to talk to you for a second. I want to say to you, first of all, you are welcome here with all of your questions with all of your struggles, trying to sort through what to do with Jesus. I want to encourage you. Jesus is patient with you. He's patient with the disciples. He's patient with us as we have our own doubts, our own hesitancy of knowing how to follow him. So I want to say to you, if, if you have any questions, any struggles in particular, I'd love to talk with you about those. And so many of the people around you would also as well. Begin the conversation. But begin this conversation knowing that you must make a decision. You must come to a place of either accepting the rule and the authority of Jesus, as he says, or of rejecting it and saying, I don't think so. It's not for me. See, he claims all authority and that demands a response from us of either, yes, I submit, Lord, or no, I refuse you. See, Jesus has all authority in heaven and earth as the head of a new and gloriously good dominion. The head of a new and gloriously good kingdom. The head of a new and gloriously good new creation people who are his church. That's us. We are the place where he is exerting and growing his dominion. He's doing it here as he grows 
his church. And for this reason, all this authority and all this dominion that he has, he therefore commands his disciples. I want to look at our second point, Jesus' command. Look at verses 19 to 20 with me. He says this. He says, go therefore. Therefore is there for a reason. It's drawing a conclusion from what he said before. All authority in heaven and earth is mine. Because that's the case, because I'm the head of a new dominion, you need to go. You need to go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Everyone needs to know about this new dominion. Everyone needs to come in and take refuge in the goodness of the dominion and the eternal rule of Jesus that is growing. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So many alls. It's very full, all the alls in this passage. But reading these words, We should ask the question, how then does Jesus' dominion and his kingdom grow? How does it grow? It grows when his disciples, loving Jesus, receiving his love for them, return and respond to him in obedience to his command. His kingdom grows when his disciples are obedient to go. There are three things that I want you to see in Jesus' command this morning, his command to the disciples, then his command to the disciples who we are today. First, I want you to see its command, not for some people, but for all people. Jesus says, make disciples of all nations. That's just so awesome. It's such good news. This is not an ethnic religion. This is a religion for everyone. This is a relationship with God and a dominion and a new kingdom for everyone. See, Jesus is a creator God who made every person on earth in the first place. He's the person who died so that every person on earth who turns to him would be forgiven and saved and reconciled to God. And he's the one who has authority over every nation. And so he sends his disciples to everyone, not to a few, but to all. You know, one of the things I love best about Christ City Kitsilano Church is that this church is a growing international church. We're a small church, but here we have this beautiful representation that Jesus' command is to all nations, it's to all people. And the more that people come from all over the world to come and to worship together here with us, the more that we share the good news with those around us in Vancouver that haven't yet known Jesus, we are unified together as one new people, united in Jesus from every tribe and nation and tongue. And it's glorious. It's beautiful. It's good. It's a little taste of that time when we will be forever with the Lord and all the peoples and nations and tribes and tongues from all of history are together worshiping God through Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's going to be good. And we see a little taste of that here today already. So the first thing about this command is it's a command to make disciples of all nations, not just some. Second, Jesus commands the disciples to baptize all these people in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's an interesting thing. How does baptism connect to the dominion of Jesus? I'm not sure how to sort that out. Well, think about it this way. 
When you become a citizen of Canada, you must swear an oath to be faithful and allegiant to Canada. Some of you have sworn that oath as you become citizens here uh, in Canada. Similarly, baptism in the name of God, the name of Father and Son and Holy Spirit, it's the ceremony that God gave the church that signals a departure from belonging to the dominion of the world to now belong to the dominion of our triune God, the dominion of Jesus, the Son of Man. When we're baptized, it's showing that we no longer belong to what we used to belong to. Now we've been moved. We belong to a new dominion in Jesus. The Apostle Paul, he wrote in the letter to the Colossians about what happens to us when we become Christians in the same language of transference from one kingdom to another. And he said in chapter 1, verse 13 to 14, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness, the domain of the beasts and their false authority and rule. And he's transferred us instead to the kingdom of his beloved son, the kingdom of Jesus, the son of man, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So think about this. If you are a Christian, something amazing has happened to you. You don't belong to your old way of life, to the city, to this world, to the sin that held you captive, to the philosophies and ideologies that you once served. You are a precious, beloved child of God, brought and welcomed to himself as one who belongs to him forever. That's who you are. You belong to God Most High, to the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who has saved you. Isn't that glorious? It's beautiful. By the way, if you've not been baptized, you're a follower of Jesus, you should get baptized to show how you are now belonging to this God who saved you. Also, there's a word of encouragement here and a challenge for us who maybe are living in ways that aren't in line with our baptism. Remember, you don't belong to this world anymore, Christ City. You belong to the triune God who saved you. That's a challenge for us to repent, again, to turn to him and to live like it. All right, third. First, first the, the all nations. Second, be baptized, singling the transference of dominion. Third, in this command we see, the new citizens of this new and better kingdom, the dominion of Jesus, they need to learn. They need to be taught. They need to be taught all that it means to belong to this new kingdom of Jesus. And for that reason, Jesus commands his disciples to, in verse 20, teach them to observe all, all that I have commanded you. All. All-encompassing word. All that Jesus has commanded must be taught. All his teaching must be observed. All his instruction must be followed. All the word of God that we have in the Bible, the word of God, by the way, that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, that he did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Because all this word must be followed and obeyed and taught and instructed and held onto for us as a new people of God. See, this precious Bible that we teach every Sunday, that I encourage you to be reading every single day, is the constitution of Jesus' dominion. This Bible, this Word of God, 
is our manifesto. It's our philosophy. It's a thing we turn to for counsel, for wisdom, for instruction. It is the word of God that we are to be taught and follow as Jesus' disciples. Now, do I need to point out how controversial Jesus' words are here? He isn't just saying that he's Lord of lords and God of gods. He's commanding his disciples to teach others who don't yet believe that to be true, that it is true. Do you see the controversy? To be commanded to go and to teach all that Jesus commands, to teach obedience to it, that goes directly against our religious commitment as Western people. You know what our religious commitment is as Western people? The thing that we hold as the one moral value that binds all of us together as modern Western people It's this, no religion, no creed, no way of life is to be considered superior to another. All are equal. All are welcome. All are equally valuable. And Jesus is saying, that isn't true. I think to our shame, Western cultural beliefs about equality of all ways of life, they're making the way into the church and they're corrupting our obedience to Jesus. For example, according to a recent Barna statistic, 47% of millennials and younger Christians think that evangelism is morally wrong. Can you believe that? When polled, 47% of people who say, I follow this Jesus who, t- who gave this great commission, they believe that it's morally wrong to teach others to follow Jesus. And that's crazy. (laughs) It's crazy because every Christian who's come to know the goodness of Jesus today has only come to know him because someone had the courage to challenge them and to tell them about Jesus. Every testimony that we watch at this church about people who've learned how much better Jesus is than anything and everyone else, that only happens. Those testimonies are only true because somebody told that person about Jesus and shared the good news of what it means to follow him that's greater than anything else you can follow in your life. See, Christ City, I think we need to repent of believing that missionary is a bad word. I think we need to repent of it. I think it's true, certainly, that some Christian ministries have done horrible, sinful things in the name of Jesus. That's true. But we must repent of our sin, not the mission of Jesus. There's a difference. We can certainly call to repentance and turn away from every sinful action that's been done in the name of Jesus. But we must not turn our backs on the mission of Jesus. Because the mission of Jesus is so good. It's this mission that has been saving men and women, rescuing them from the corruption and the slavery of sin, rescuing them from the power and destroying terror of Satan's authority, dominion over them, rescuing them from terrible ways of life that are just bringing destruction and death and making them new giving them a life that's truly life, restoring them in relationship with God, changing and transforming them by degree, and then their communities, and then their own cultures. 
The gospel message goes forward as the instrument of Jesus to challenge the minions of this world and to bring something beautiful and good. See, Jesus has been storming the gates of hell through his church for centuries. And it's a good mission. I'm going to tell you about it. At the end of the first century AD, it's estimated there were less than 10,000 Christians in the Roman Empire. It's not very many. And we know from tradition, we don't know the stats, we know from tradition that there were apostles and disciples that were also sent out eastward and southward. We have some stories of the eastward expansion as far as India, and even into China we have some stories going into Africa. We don't know much more of those expansions. But we know these 10,000 Christians in the Roman Empire at the end of the first century, they were radically faithful and loyal to Jesus, their king. We know they suffered and died serving him and that by the end of the third century, there were 30 million Christians in the Roman world. 30 million. And you know where the center of Christianity was at that time? It wasn't in Rome. It was Africa. North Africa was the center of Christianity at that time. But the story of Jesus' kingdom is not all straightforward victories and triumph. The church's own sin or the church's lack of faithfulness in the faith of persecution has often stopped its growth. And that was true, sadly, for North Africa. In the 6th century, the North African church was conquered by Islam. See, in the face of persecution, these Christians, they weren't sure if they wanted to keep following Jesus. It was too extreme, too difficult. So many transferred their allegiance again away from the dominion of Jesus. But at the same time, the church was still growing in the world. Because in the 6th century, St. Gregory the Great, he saw enslaved English people in the Roman market. And he cried out, not Anglos, but angels. And he felt compelled to begin a mission to England to save the barbarians. He heard of their way of life and how they needed to know the good news of Jesus. So he commissioned St. Augustine, the missionary, different from St. Augustine we often quote here in the pulpit, and sent him to go to be a missionary to the Anglos. At the same time, St. Boniface was sent to France to be a missionary to the Gauls. And the medieval mission began going full steam and century after century at that time, people were going out far and wide to the known world to share the good news of Jesus, to make disciples Europe was changed. When we hear the Viking stories, we look back, we kind of wonder at them, but there aren't Vikings in Europe anymore, praise God. The raping and pillaging had to stop and come under the glorious good reign of Jesus. And it did. Many, many years later, after a period of stagnation and foreign missions in the Protestant church, there was a man named William Carey. And he caught the vision of Jesus in Matthew 28, and he called for a new missions movement to win others for Jesus in the early 1700s. And he began what's known as a modern missions movement, only around 300 years old. But it's the inheritance of the modern missions movement that is why so many of you are here in this congregation this morning. As missionaries went out to places like Indonesia and to China, to sub-Saharan Africa, to India, to Pakistan, and far, far beyond. And then the inheritance of that missionary work is why so many of these places have so many Christians today. All in all, according to a Pew Research estimation in 2020, approximately 2.4 billion people globally would call themselves Christians today, a little over a quarter. The mission of Jesus' church is advancing. 
And why does this all matter? It matters first because we need to be reminded of who Jesus is and what he is doing. We need to be. His rule is an absolute rule. He promised to build his church, and he has, and he will continue to. Second, we need to know this because we must be confronted with the words of Jesus to go and baptize and teach. Because far too often, myself included, we are ashamed of him. We're afraid to talk about him with others. We don't have courage to be misunderstood, let alone to be persecuted. Third, we need a hope-filled vision for our own church, for Christ City Kitsilano. Because most of this regular work of disciple-making, of missions, most of it hasn't happened by people being sent. Most of it has happened by people being committed to a place. In the history of the world, it's been Christians who felt the call of Jesus Christ to make disciples, to teach, to band together, to sacrifice, to give, to live in community, to work together, to be a bastion of the kingdom of Jesus in their own neighborhood. Christ City Kitsilano, this is what you're called to. This is a church where our mission statement is to make missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. We will send missionaries, certainly. We also want to acknowledge all of us are missionaries. In our own neighborhood, we're called to live here, to serve here, to share the gospel of Jesus here, to be faithful to Jesus where we are. So I want you to close your eyes. You have to do it. Close your eyes. The guy from the pulpit said it, so you got to obey. And I want you to think about the faces and names of your neighbors. What you decide to sacrifice today in response to Jesus' command will have an impact on those people. It will mean maybe their life and salvation or their stagnation and death and judgment apart from God. So how will you respond to the command of Jesus? You can open your eyes again. (laughs) You know, one reaction I think we could have to to hear all of this is just to be deeply overwhelmed. It's just so much. (laughs) We can say, does it all depend on me? How how can I do this? (laughs) Well, praise God to know it doesn't all depend on you. And that's why Jesus gave us the very end of verse 20 in our third point, the goodness of his presence. It's just unbelievable that he ends the gospel this way. It's glorious. Jesus says, and you need to hear this, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. See, Jesus commands us, but he always empowers what he commands. And here he's empowering us with his own presence to comfort us, to strengthen us, and to help us to obey him. I want you to remember back earlier in the passage in verse 20, some doubted when Jesus came to them. I think that the end of this verse here in verse 28 is Jesus meeting and ministering to those doubts in his kindness. But he doesn't minister to their weakness with a pep talk like the coach in the third quarter. Come on, team, you're losing. Work harder. It's not how he ministers to them. See, Jesus meets his disciples' weakness and hesitancy with his own empowering presence. Behold, behold, 
I am with you. I'm with you, Christ said he, always to the end of the age. I remember when I was a kid, when we'd go to the lake sometimes, um, we'd get one of those little paddle boats, and uh, my dad would sit on one side, I'd sit on the other side, and there were two sets of pedals that were connected. You know those boats? You guys seen those before? And we'd navigate the lake. I'd be paddling. I'd be paddling. But my dad was also paddling. And little eight-year-old Brant wasn't contributing all that much. As my father labored with me to move that boat forward. I think very much in the same way, that's what Jesus is talking about here. He's with us, Christ said he. He's working through us and in us by the presence of his Holy Spirit. Paul captured the mystery of what this would look like beautifully in Colossians 129 when he said this. Paul says, For this I toil, that's, the, that's the, the movement forward of the gospel that he's toiling for. For this I toil, what does Paul say? Struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul's saying, For this I am laboring. I'm working hard, friends. But I'm working hard with all of the energy and the power of God that's powerfully working inside of me. Where does Paul's energy begin and where does God stop? Where does God's begin and end? And how how does that work together? Paul's saying, he's working in me. He's laboring through me. And my labor is empowered by him. But I think the best illustration for what Jesus is talking about by his empowering presence, it comes from the book of Acts. Because Luke, the doctor who wrote the gospel of Luke in the book of Acts, which is a story of the early expansion of Jesus' church, he's so clear about this. Because even after hearing the command from Jesus, these disciples in this story, they're still too scared to do very much. I mean, understandably, they're scared, right? Jesus had just been killed by the religious authorities and by Rome. They're afraid. They're going to get killed too. They're not sure what to do. But then everything changes. Because as they wait and as they pray, shut inside a house together, quivering in their fear, Jesus, who had ascended into heaven, descended in power by his Holy Spirit to fill them. In fulfillment of his promise, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And then empowered by Jesus' presence, they're changed. Peter was radically changed. He went from a timid, hesitating, afraid disciple to preaching powerfully and publicly about the authority and dominion of Jesus. Like overnight, it's crazy. Acts 2, 36 to 38. Suddenly, this guy who was afraid is outside saying to everyone and all the crowds, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, that's Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. (laughs) Poked his finger straight in their eye and is bold about it. (laughs) Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Whose work was that? The empowering presence and work of God. And they said to Peter and the rest of the disciples, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Jesus' presence forever changed Peter. But it changed the other disciples too. And as we turn to Jesus in trusting faith and obedience to fulfill the mission he's given us, his presence will change and empower us also. I don't know if you know this, some of you do, but in my own life, there was a time when I was terrified of public speaking. I used to go when I was 17 and and teach at the Union Gospel Mission in Mission. I'd be sick. I was so scared. 
And I go there and I just say, um, the whole time. And they'd call me the um man. And, uh, and that, that fear stayed with me even as I was called to ministry. Called into ministry, go to seminary, at a church in the States, and would get opportunities to preach and to teach. And I turned them down because I was afraid. I'm called as a pastor. I knew that. And I was afraid to talk to people about Jesus. But you know what Jesus did? He began to change me. As I took one little step of obedience at a time, his empowering presence and his Holy Spirit began to change who I am. I hope to grow me to become a useful servant of the gospel message for him. So if you feel afraid and overwhelmed by all of these words, please hear Jesus speaking to you in verse 20. This is for you. I am with you always to the end of the age. So let's trust him. And let's take one step of obedience at a time to rescue friends and neighbors for Jesus. See, Jesus has all authority and power in heaven and earth. His is an everlasting, glorious, good dominion. And he has commanded us to participate in his mission to rescue people and slay for the power of darkness. And he has empowered us with his presence. The question is, how will we respond? Will we rejoice in the goodness of his dominion? Or will we seek another kingdom and a better way? Let's pray. Jesus, we come to you and we ask that you would, you would win us for yourself. Wherever there are corners of our heart that are unsubmitted and afraid, would you encourage us with your presence, minister to us by your Holy Spirit. Win us to yourself and your love and your mission and establish this church as a bastion of the dominion and the glory of Jesus Christ in our neighborhood. Lord, would you win so many others around us? Lord, would you empower us to be ministers to them that they would know the preeminent goodness of the dominion of Jesus and to be saved? We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.